transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Now is the time because night has fallen on the American desert. When did you first see Death Valley? For me, it was the cold winter of 1982, one of those notorious El Nino winters, and I squeezed into a beat-up Volkswagen Beetle with three other high school hooligans. Somehow we'd all caught desert fever, not valley fever, the killer lung fungus common to Phoenix, but desert fever, a crazed longing for being far from the stains of human civilization, the bozo version we endure in California and what they used to call the Sun Belt when there was some novelty in moving away from Ohio or Michigan and settling where the sun always shines and where there's no water. We bounced up Interstate 15 through Barstow and had a 3 a.m. breakfast in Baker at the Bun Boy. Plenty of coffee. And then north on Highway 127 as the sky lightened and the white winter sun suddenly topped Kingston Peak and there it was. I'd never seen anything so vast in my life. Yes, I'd been to the Grand Canyon on a school field trip when I lived in Arizona, and that is certainly big, but it's big in the wrong direction. Down. Here, the valley ahead spread out for what must have been hundreds of miles. The road shrinking in the distance, going from wide blacktop ribbon to a thin, dark thread. The funeral mountains rising to the northwest, cold gray clouds clotted around the peaks. No sign of another human, no cops. Just the four of us in a primer and bondoed, falling apart VW bug with a broken heater fan, 30 degrees Fahrenheit outside and not much warmer inside. We parked sideways in the middle of the two-lane highway sometime after dawn. We got out to breathe that fresh, cold desert air. We cracked some beers to greet the day. Miller Genuine Draft, if memory serves, a premium brew. The color of urine after eating too many vitamin C's. No low-rent Schaefer cans for us. Whatever the 1980s looked like, pastels and hair gel mostly, this was the opposite. My 35mm camera, my father's actually, was loaded with black and white film with Kodachrome color slide film as the backup roll. I stood in the road and took pictures of this ridiculous junker car, my juvenile delinquent friends using the roof as a beer table. It was magnificent. We were blue-collar romantics, you could say. High school was wrapping up. College was not on the schedule. We read books and we went to punk rock shows and watched weird movies from the special interest section of the local videotape and used record shop. Ronald Reagan was president and that gang was hoping to start the draft again because of El Salvador and the Sandinistas. 
Well, at least we had America's national parks to enjoy for the moment. We wandered through tunnels underneath the old Furnace Creek Inn. But we were not welcome in the restaurant due to our general appearance. Those were the days when wearing a pair of Levi's was enough to get you refused service at a sit-down restaurant. Well, we sneered at the middle-aged in their pink polo shirts and their pressed khaki slacks, and we moved on. But in truth, the whole national park was crowded with snowbirds and their RVs and packaged tourists pouring out of comfortable buses from Las Vegas. And after hitting the visitor center and its talking dioramas that croaked out, the boys have come, the boys have come, and making the required stops at Scotty's Castle and Badwater, well, we headed out back to the place that looked so interesting on the drive-in, Death Valley Junction. It looked like a diorama itself, a whitewashed, dusty, Spanish-style plaza holding a rundown hotel with greasy windows and some abandoned rock and mineral shops and a meeting hall at the end. The Amargosa Opera House. The place had an eerie feel, that particular feeling that goes with being alone, but not quite alone. There were people in there, from the looks of a semi-functional pickup truck parked nearby and the occasional glance of a face turning away on the other side of those dirty windows. But nobody bothered us, so we walked around and we took a lot of pictures and tried various doorknobs, all of which were locked. It was the winter holiday season and the place was clearly not welcoming any visitors. The gas station and garage across the two-lane highway had not been operational in a long time. I was still walking around, going through the colonnades, when my friend said they were ready to go. Well, I was not sure I wanted to leave at all. Fifteen years prior, a dancer named Marta Beckett found herself in the same place to get a tire fixed at the filling station, still in operation at the time, in 1967. She and her husband had been visiting the National Monument, and while waiting for repairs at Death Valley Junction, she also fell under the spell of this strange, bright place. Marta Beckett decided to stay. It was 1967, after all, and free spirits from the cold and dreary northeast were popping up all over the rural west, back to the land, away from the turmoil of the poison cities. She peeked into the old community hall and saw in her mind's eye a beautiful theater. She would dance here, she decided, performing her own show, Marta Beckett tracked down the owner of the abandoned Pacific Borax Company little town of Death Valley Junction and agreed right then and there to pay $45 a month rent for the whole place, which needed a lot of work. One issue she needed to address was the lack of townspeople, the lack of neighbors, the lack of an audience. And so she painted the audience over many years on the walls of the meeting hall that she renamed the Amargosa Opera House. These paintings, seen up close, are mildly terrifying. 
To be honest, I found Marta Beckett's whole deal to be mildly terrifying. What with her creepy clown ballet and the insane faces painted on every flat surface. That's why I liked it. The idea of it, anyway. All those years of hanging around Death Valley Junction and I never once tried to see her one-woman show. The idea of it was quite enough. Marta Beckett was about as weird as they come and she found a place as creepy as her own imagination. There was this shaggy-haired alleged comedian named Tom who arrived after Marta's husband headed out for good, and Tom was nearly as weird, serving as Marta's shabby master of ceremonies. And despite doing a good business in tourist season and getting all kinds of mainstream media coverage from the likes of National Geographic and the network news magazine shows, The place was never maintained, never really repaired. The whole scene was a bit wrong, as would become apparent in later years when Marta Beckett's story went from a charming PBS tale of an eccentric artist to what was probably lingering around the place all along. Dark secrets. And in her old age, whispered claims of senior abuse that occasionally made the local newspapers and sketchy characters wrangling over her value in monetary terms. It's a haunted place in a very real sense. Bad things have happened there, odd things. There are tales of babies buried in the walls, of drownings, of despair and manipulation and loneliness. That is the shadow world of Death Valley Junction, and each night it returns. And if you were there in the night, you will sense it, but it is also a place of inspiration, a place of hard beauty, a place where certain kinds of people can look around at the auto junkyard and the broken gas pumps and the peeling white plaster piled up around the buildings and say, this is the place. Another artist of the time, a bum with a philosophy degree and a Mozart flute, was driving a school bus through Death Valley Junction twice a day when Marta Beckett decided to stay. Up at Ash Meadows, which was still a whorehouse at the time and had a nice little bar room, this philosopher waited out the school day under the swamp cooler, putting together his account to being a seasonal park ranger in Utah in the 1950s. This philosopher and school bus driver, who had published three novels to no particular acclaim, was Edward Abbey and the book he was working on would be published in 1968 as Desert Solitaire. Edward Abbey died a generation ago, but Marta Beckett kept on ticking until January 30th of 2017 when she died at the extremely ripe old age of 92. She was still performing her show until 2012, and I never saw it. And I do not even want to see a YouTube video of the thing. It's perfect as it is. As for me and my hoodlum friends, we return to Death Valley and the surrounding wilderness again and again. On our second trip, we found a light on at Death Valley Junction. And we convinced that shaggy character within to rent us a room or two for the night as we had no camping equipment and it was very cold out. We bribed him with $20 and a couple of beers. And he pointed us down a dusty, decrepit hallway to a couple of connecting rooms, seemingly unchanged since construction was completed in the 1920s. 
The beds were small and dirty and uncomfortable. There were grotesque paintings leaning here and there, some by Marta and some left from the days of the borax mine. The rooms were unheated and the wind howled through the broken windows and we downed enough beers to sleep but were awoken repeatedly by doors creaking open and dresser drawers inching outward and the sounds of footsteps and whispers in the hallway. In the three or four decades since, as a suspected mind ray from an ancient satellite continues to diminish the mental capacity of the average American, a popular form of televised entertainment involves hillbillies bumping around spooky old houses at night, pointing voltage meters at invisible ghosts and each other and claiming dust balls on their cell phone photos are spirit orbs. According to the internet... Many of these people have since brought their ghost meters and reality TV cameras to Death Valley Junction, and they claim the place is creepy as hell, and they're right. I've never really gotten the place out of my mind. It met an ideal I had not yet developed, a kind of mental painting of a very striking building or small compound all by itself at a high desert crossroads. A place out of a dream. Uh, late summer is a bittersweet time in the Mojave Desert. Well, we all look forward to the cooler temperatures and the promise of being able to go outside during the day without crying. We do not always look forward to the return of the tourist. But, being good Americans, we will take the money as it is still required to make some sort of wage one way or another. Sometimes you'll notice certain kinds of wild plants start showing up somewhere you've been hanging around for years and years. I don't recall ever seeing so much damned bursage in the high desert. Or maybe it's seeing so many burrs produced by the bursage. Maybe that's the part that seems new because this was the first sort of wet year after a long, long drought. did some research, and sure enough, bursage is becoming more common in the Mojave Desert, so say those who keep records of such things. Here's something interesting. If you pronounce bursage as bur-sage, that's just what it looks like, a little sagebrush growing terrible yellow burrs. Yeah, while bursage looks a little better, it is related to the hated roadside ragweed that provides so much discomfort in the form of allergies and ugliness across the desert southwest. Ragweed. Wherever you see it, you know somebody just doesn't care enough to cut it down. And that way, it's what biologists call a... Indicator species, it indicates a bad place where residents or road crews just don't bother.
And many years back, I noticed a man in a big floppy sun hat walking very, very slowly down my dirt road on hot mornings. And then I saw him walking even more slowly along a couple of acres I had up there, and I went out to say hello and make sure he wasn't a serial killer or escaped from a secure facility for lunatics, and he looked up from underneath that big hat with a neighborly grin. And I said, hello, Mr. Mayor. For the mystery man was my own neighbor at the time, then the mayor of Yucca Valley. I learned it was his habit to go out in the spring and the summer and pull ragweed from the sides of the road, regardless if it was along his property or a neighbor's. Until that moment, I had never appreciated that the lack of ragweed on our road was not an accident of nature. And while I live somewhere else entirely now, I have adopted his habit because it makes a tremendous difference in how you feel about a place when you don't have to drive or walk through a hideous forest of waist-high, sick-smelling ragweed just to get home and back. Let's just take a walk up here. I want to make sure nothing was left behind. I came through here yesterday and came upon a video production again. Day three, with some pop band mimicking the playing of a song. They had a bunch of mirrored panels set up behind the drum kit up there against those boulders, an approximation of that art installation down in Palm Springs. Now, this being a nature preserve, you might think having 15 trucks and a bunch of 10-foot-tall mirrored panels and camera dollies would be inappropriate, especially hours after sunset when the preserve is closed to human traffic. Well, it sadly occurred to me that even if this film crew had all the required permits in a crooked place like this, the permit fee was probably requested in the form of cash or a personal check. And the Mojave, of course, is mostly federal land, national parks, national monuments open space, nature preserves, wildlife sanctuaries, wildlife corridors, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine bases. Well, it's a place of great importance, ecologically, militarily, financially, of course, always in the news for one reason or another whether in the travel section or regarding whatever amateur mafia characters in Washington are currently trying to steal it all away from the people and give it to their brother-in-law's mining company, etc. But if you want to screw up a day-use-only conservation area with your dumb music video shoot for three or four days and nights, they will take your money hours away from here. In some dark, grimy office in the smoggy hellscape of San Bernardino. Now, not half a mile from this musical video setup, I came across a passenger car parked haphazardly on the dirt road here. 
and a grown woman standing outside of it with a hula hoop bouncing around her hips. It's almost like people don't know what to do with themselves. Probably the first classical music album I ever owned was Antonin Dvorak's New World Symphony, Symphony No. 9 in E minor, from the New World. I tell you, I mostly bought the record because it had a picture of the Grand Canyon on the cover. It said New World Symphony, and there was the Grand Canyon, so I assumed it had something strongly to do with the desert southwest. And if you've ever taken a walk in the desert, listening to the New World Symphony on your earbuds, you know that everything seems more exciting and adventurous. Every frightened quail, every jackrabbit bounding by, every strange sound... All infused with drama. Well, it turns out that Dvorak did not write the New World Symphony in the desert southwest at all. He never went to the Grand Canyon. In fact, the wide open spaces that apparently inspired this American symphony... were the prairies of Iowa. Dvorak wrote Symphony No. 9 in E minor in a New York hotel room. It's when he was the director of the National Conservatory of Music of America. This was in the late 1800s. He wrote the symphony in 1893. But it was very much inspired by the music of America, specifically the music of Native Americans and African American spirituals. It has become one of the most popular symphonies of all time, and it was even played on the moon by Neil Armstrong during the first moon landing, the first human moon landing in 1969. And in 1964, August, 
Astronauts Frank Borman, Neil Armstrong, John Young, and Deke Slayton underwent survival training at Stead Air Force Base, 10 miles north of downtown Reno. NASA astronauts trained for a bewildering array of disasters in the 1960s, including the possibility of a crash landing on desert terrain. Should an Apollo capsule fail to splash down in the ocean as planned, the crew would be prepared for any kind of remote environment on Earth. As deserts make up one-third of our planet's landmass, knowing how to survive a desert crash landing could be the difference between life and death. Some announcements. We are presenting Desert Oracle Campfire Stories in person at the Ace Hotel and Swim Club in Palm Springs on the first Thursday of the month, 7 p.m. outside around the campfire, but also next to a cocktail bar and a swimming pool, September 7th, and continuing on the first Thursdays in October, November, December, free and open all. Hope to see you there in the fine months of fall. This program is brought to you by Desert Oracle, the pocket-sized quarterly journal of the American desert. Become a subscriber today and you'll receive four delightful issues filled with interesting stories about our arid lands. Send $25 by check or money order to Desert Oracle P.O. Box 1735, Joshua Tree, California, or subscribe online at desertoracle.com. Our autumn issue will be here in September, such is my pledge to you. Meanwhile, you can pick up the summer issue. That's issue number six. Last week I misspoke and called it summer issue number seven, I assume, because I dearly wish number seven was already done and sent to the printers. Anyway, you can pick up the current issue at Red Rock Books and Ridgecrest at the Little Alien next to Area 51 right there in Rachel, Nevada at the beloved Cactus Mart in Morongo Valley, and of course at Back of Beyond Books in Moab, Utah, just down the highway from Arches National Park. Speaking of Arches and Back of Beyond Books, we are teaming up with that fine independent bookstore for next year's 50th anniversary of the publication of Desert Solitaire. It was half a century ago. When Edward Abbey's great book was first published, a book that defines desert conservation, beautifully and wildly written, a book that for so many of us sealed the deal. Desert Oracle will publish a special edition, autumn 2018, next year. That's all about Abbey's famed and influential desert solitaire. Oh, and get this, we're going to have some previously unpublished little gems from Mr. Abbey himself. At least that's the plan. Thanks for listening to the program on KCDZ 107.7 FM Fridays. You never know when, but they strive for 10. Heard from Amboy Des Isaacs and across the great Mojave wilderness. Write to us. It's radio at desertoracle.com. And good night from the voice of the desert. <laughs>